Welcome to another episode of the Gay Barcive Show, where we record gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our special guest today is author Robert Carl, who'll be telling us about his bar experiences in Philadelphia, as well as Puerto Rico. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. I'm really honored. And I want to actually start by saying that I am so impressed with what you're doing with um, preserving our history, the history of our community, and what a unique way to go about it by uh, collecting and displaying the logos of all these different clubs around the country. I think it's fascinating. And I've listened to a few of your episodes, and I'm definitely going to listen to more because the stories behind them are just great. And I appreciate hearing about other people's experiences, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk about some of the experiences that I've had. Well, thank you so much. It's, um, you know, I wasn't sure at the beginning how popular the concept would be, but I created a Facebook page about two years ago. And uh, we have about 5,400 active members in that group now that are really? constantly posting memories and photographs from their gay bars in the past. So apparently That's really awesome. I, I, you really came up with a great idea. I'll be honest, I wish I had thought of it uh, because I, I just think it's fabulous and I commend you for it. Well, thank you so much. And a great part about it is I get to meet all these cool people, even if it's virtually, uh, who have all these stories to tell. So I get to hear all the stories firsthand from the people who actually live through them and share them with everybody so they'll be out there for eternity, hopefully. Absolutely. So, Robert, your history starts, um, from what you've told me, with your very first gay bar experience in a little teeny tiny place in Pennsylvania called State College that probably nobody on the planet outside of Pennsylvania has heard of. Um, and that bar was called My Oh My. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What was it like walking into the bar there for the first time? Well, I have to say it was it was what I was looking for. I was an 18-year-old student, a freshman student at Pennsylvania State University. So if no one ever heard of State College, Pennsylvania, I know they've heard of Penn State University. And that's where I was um, you know, going to school. And I was just, this is in the 1970s. So it was like the start of what they called then gay liberation. It was, um, you know, certainly not out the way it is today. It was very different. And I was searching for myself, my own identity, but I was also searching because I wasn't quite sure that there were other people out there like me because I just did, didn't know any. Um, um, so walking into the my oh my, I have to say, I don't know if this is common in a small town uh, to have this kind of a setup, but it was divided into two sections, a gay section and a straight section. So if you went in from the main entrance, on College Avenue, you went into the gay bar, but if you went into the um, entrance from the alleyway, you went into a straight stripper bar where they had go-go girls and the college kids were in there, you know, having a great randy old time. Um, but to walk into the gay section, it was, it, was, it, it made me feel validated it made me feel that I wasn't alone. I was less isolated. And I, that was where I first found community. And one of the things I want to mention throughout all of the bars that I'm going to talk about, I want to have kind of a common thread. I want to talk about the atmosphere in each one. And the atmosphere there, the way I would describe it, was collegiate because it was in a college town. I was a college student, and while there may have been people there, I'm sure there were people there who lived in town, we would call them townies, um, 
I didn't really see them. I only saw people like my own age, 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, they had a liberal carding policy because uh, the drinking age in Pennsylvania was 21. Um, but I got in with no problem. And it was quiet and subdued. It wasn't a raucous place. There was a jukebox playing. There was one bar. There were um, tables and chairs scattered around. But it was a place where you could actually have a conversation. There was a lot of soul music playing on the jukebox, and people were slow dancing. And I just found myself drawn there constantly as a student because uh, I had an unfortunate experience with being outed by my straight friends and subsequently being shunned by most of them, actually all of them. So I found real comfort in going out to the Mai Mai, meeting people, getting to know people, and they became my, my new friends. And I, I still know some people even today that I knew back from the Mai Mai. Wow. Amazing considering how much has gone, gone, gone on in, in that time period. And I feel very lucky to be alive. And I'm lucky to still know a few people from those days because let's face it, uh, so much has happened. So to put it in perspective, uh, to put it in perspective a little bit, what years are you talking about with the My Oh My experience? We're talking about the mid 1970s. Uh, through the end of the 70s, um, which is when I graduated from college. And as soon as I graduated from Penn State, that very day, I moved to Philadelphia, back to Philadelphia. I was born in Philadelphia, but I didn't grow up there. I grew up in a little town called Harrisburg. Okay. And so, but, and in, in retrospect, going to Penn State was a real mistake. I should have gone to college in Philly, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And, and so once I start something, I like to stick with it. So I stayed there for all four years. But I, I ended up spending a lot of weekends, like my senior year in college, going down to the clubs in Philly as opposed to going to the Mayo oh Mai anymore because I knew people down in Philly and those clubs were a lot more exciting than the Mayo oh Mai was, to be quite frank. Well, to be honest with you, I can totally relate to your story about, you know, the the feeling when you walked into my oh my, because my first bar experience was only a few years later. It was in 1978. And even though I had a de facto boyfriend in high school, someone that I regularly kind of fooled around with and whatever, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't right. know there was a community. I didn't know that there was any future that we could ever you know, become a couple or be together for any length of time or have any community of friends. And it was the same way with me when I first walked into that first gay bar that you suddenly realize that you're not alone in the world because at that time, there were no gay characters in TV shows. There were no gay yeah. characters in movies or books really, um, unless it was something tragic. Right. But they were a child molester or you know, a serial killer, you'd hear about them. Right. Um, so I, I know what you feel. And that's part of the reason that this project kind of got started is because we have abandoned the memories of so many of our gay bars that meant so much to so many people and shaped their entire futures, what they would do, you know, professionally or personally over the decades, um, all kind of rooted in this community of bars that that helped us become who we, you know, who we are now. And the person who owned my oh my, my hat is off to that person because they, he was providing an opportunity for a marginalized community, very small silent community there in that environment because Penn State is, I mean, State College is a small town until the students arrive for, for Penn State. And I kind of didn't realize that I was putting myself in a very um, ultra-white, conservative environment 
which wasn't what I was looking for, but I didn't realize it at the time. So that's why when I look back at it, to me, you know, it, it was it was fine. It is what it is, but it wasn't what I, I wanted my life to be. So that's why I moved to Philly. But I will say, just like you, I fooled around with guys in high school. Um, it's not like I had no idea about, you know, gay sex, but I did just like you said, I didn't know that there was a community. I didn't know that there were other people out there. I wasn't really sure. Um, and the straight majority at that time did a great job of silencing us and marginaling, marginalizing us and making us be invisible. And that's one of the things I'm concerned about today, which is again, that's one of the reasons I wrote my book, and I'm so excited about what you're doing because I don't want us to be invisible. I don't want us to be silenced. I want us to be out and loud and proud. Well, thank you. So after the My Oh My experience, you moved on to the big city. And at the time, Philadelphia was one of the gay meccas uh, in the country. There was you know, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Uh, Atlanta was was growing in their gay community, but Philly had a lot of bars that have been very well remembered by a lot of people. And you suddenly went from having one small town bar that had a mixed clientele, you know, it was a split bar with uh, straight strippers and, and uh, gay men, and you moved to Philadelphia. What was that like? That was exciting. Uh... That's the main word that I would use to describe it because I could find my way in a larger community. And I'll admit at first I was swayed by my friends to go certain places because that's where they wanted to go. And I dressed a certain way because that's how they dressed. And I eventually found that that wasn't really me. You know, I preferred other places, other kinds of bars there. Um, but, I, you know, you're, you have to feel your way around. And uh, so, but I was very excited to be there. And um, you're right. There were lots and lots of clubs, lots and lots of opportunities. And... Um, a lot of them have gone by the wayside, but they're still they're still rocking and rolling in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. Now, one of the bars that you mentioned was Two Four Seven, which when I first heard about it a couple of years ago, I I thought in my head I was thinking Twenty Four Seven. It's open all the time, but it's actually took its name from its street address. So, what was the Two Four Seven like? Well, it was uh, sort of advertised as a Western bar. Um, whatever that means. Um, it appealed to the Levi and leather crowd. Part of the reason that I went there was that I felt very comfortable. I happened to work at 255 South 17th Street in a building called the Medical Tower Building. And I lived at 17th and Delancey Streets, which is like another half a block away. So it was very convenient as far as its location. Uh, the atmosphere there was very comfortable and casual for me. I wasn't really there for the um, like cruising. I went there more to um, have some drinks with my friends, play pool, uh, kind of relax and socialize. So for me, it wasn't really like a pickup kind of a place. You know, I, I did, I know I met some people there, but I want to tell you one story about a person there because it, it, it stood out to me that as I'm discovering community and many of us did, not everyone found what they were looking for. So I remember one person at the 247, he was a regular there, and I literally never saw him engage with anyone, talk to anyone. He kind of stood in one place. And I remember they had they also had a jukebox for, for music. And he would, you know, he had he would like tap his foot and kind of half dance, but 
that reminded me that I love the gay community, but it can be a cold, hard place for some people at some times. It's not all love and roses all the time. And I have to accept that. I think that's true of every community. It's not just the gay community. Every community has that sort of thing. But I wanted to bring that person up. I never met him. I, I have no idea if he didn't meet people because he didn't want to, or if he was desperately trying to get someone's attention and never could. I don't know what his story was, but in my books, I try to include people like that who don't really fit in and have an easy time in our community. Um, because I wanted to tell all kinds of stories, not just happy, happy stories, not just horribly, you know, terrible, violent, you know, and, and illness and death and all that sort of thing, and not just violence, but sometimes loneliness is part of our community as well. And, and so I want to bring him up because I remember him and I have empathy for him. And I hope that by doing these kinds of things that we're talking about right now helps to bring our community together rather than pushing us apart. I also wanted to mention that photo of Rod Bauer. Um, I sent you my memories of being in the 247 is looking up at the wall and there's this picture of this model in his white briefs and no shirt and he's holding a rifle. And I just thought it was one of the sexiest things I had ever seen up to that point. <laughs> now, now, you also mentioned that there was another bar in uh, Philadelphia that you went to that's kind of diametrically opposed to the concept of the 247. And that was the DCA, which was much more of a disco, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was a disco. Um, that was where we went to go dancing and socializing and showing off fashions and those kinds of things. You know, because people dressed up in those days to go to I clubs. Um, not like they, well, I, I'm not going to generalize. I'm just going to say we did get dressed up to go. And this is where I found myself being put into a, a niche where I, I love to dance. I, I lived to dance. I just found so much freedom out on the dance floor. And that's why I kept going to the DCA, um, because me and my friends had so much fun. And I will add another negative here. It was a time of heavy alcohol and drug use for me. So I was out there on the dance floor, having the time of my life, high as a kite. And that was very freeing and liberating and fun. And it relieved all the stress from your daily life. And I was there every weekend. Um, the, D the DCA was divided into other sections as well. There wasn't just the, um, the disco part. Uh, although, let me, let me remember to say, I saw the village people in the DCA. They came to do a show, and I have never been in a room so packed as it was that night. Literally, you couldn't move. Whatever spot you were in, you were kind of stuck there because you couldn't move. They packed so many people in, and what a great show it was and what a fun night that was. But they also had um, an upstairs section called the cell block. And the cell block was an area where people who uh, we're looking for more kinky, non-vanilla kinds of experiences would go. And that's where I started to spend a lot of my time. I would go to, and first it was upstairs. Later on, they moved it to a side entrance. So you would actually have to leave the main disco and go into another entrance. And they also had a lesbian bar upstairs at, at one time. And I don't know if they still do or not. Um, they... Uh, I found myself, 
I would spend the first part of the night dancing with my friends in the disco. And then as it got to be two, two o'clock, 2.30, because this was an after hours club, then I would switch over to the cell block and go over there because that was really my crowd. I, I wanted to be a part of that scene. And I had a ton of fun, both at the DCA, which at one point, there was a fire there and it closed for quite some time. And that destroyed me because it was like, where do we go now? We were so used to going to the DCA every, every weekend, but I, um, you know, we made other accommodations and then it reopened as the two, four club. And again, it still had the cell block and, and, and that part. And it's funny because when I think of the D the DCA and the two four club, I can remember exactly what it looked like. I remember the location of the various bars and things. But when I think about the cell block, I can't remember a darn thing about what it looked like inside. It was, I think the walls were painted black and it had black lights. And that was like it, you know, it was very nondescript. And the atmosphere there for me was, um, Predators and and predator and prey. It was like you went there to hunt or be hunted, and it was a very exciting experience with that kinky kind of side side dish, if you will. Yeah, and a lot of the um, the kind of Levi leather kink clubs around the country at that time um, looked exactly like what you describe um described the bar as the cell block because it was very common in those clubs to paint them black to use red light bulbs so they wouldn't right. even add more light part of that i think was so that if police or unwanted guests showed up at the door they couldn't see what was going on until they were right on top of it um and part of it was just to add that that kind of allure of you know random sex in a dark alley kind of right. Uh, thing. So I'm not surprised that you don't remember details about a club <laughs> that probably didn't have enough light in it to take a photograph. Right. Um, <laughs> and speaking of police raids, they were a regular routine. Uh, the Philly cops would come into the DCA and the 2-4 club. It was after hours. They were allowed to serve up to a certain time period, but they had these lights that would go on I guess when the cop showed up at the door, the people out in the, in the reception area would notify the bartenders to, you know, get away from behind the bars. Uh, so it looked like no one was serving anything. The cops would come in and walk around. And of course, the whole idea was to harass the customers right. to make us feel like we weren't safe. These were Philly cops I'm talking about. I'm talking about Mayor Rizzo days. Uh, you know, he said he's the one that's famous for saying he would make Attila the Hun look like a faggot. So he he was very anti-gay. He had crackdowns on bars and things like that. So, uh, yeah. Um, but you're right. That atmosphere was uh, created by having that lack of decor, that lack of light available. And again, I was still into that phase where I was high when I was in there. And that, that didn't have my recollection either, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I know I had a lot of fun in there. Now, DCA and the 2-4 Club are both closed, but the space itself is still operating as a bar. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. it's it. I think it's called Pure now. Um, I know for a while it was called Voyeur. Oh, and I wanted to show my... My, my credentials here. Here's my 2-4 club membership card, just so people can, I don't know how I managed to save this because I don't have a lot of memorabilia, which makes me sad now, but who knew? Who knew that I would be sitting here in 2022 talking about my experiences way back then? Well, not only that, but who, you know, back then even had a clue that there would be such a thing as an archive or museum that wanted to record anything about our gay history. So much of it was throwaway. You know, we got those weekly, um, what we used to call fag rags or bar rags, and we would thumb through them and see what was going on. And they got tossed in the trash can. Most people didn't save any of them. 
right? That 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 was me. Um, but it, for some, some reason, I have that card. So I, I was happy to um, be able to dig that out uh, when we first made contact because I wanted to show that. And of course, um, you know, most of us would not have saved or displayed any of that stuff because of the fear of any kind of backlash. You didn't want your parents or straight neighbors or coworkers to see you with a gay publication in 1981 or whatever, because you might have lost your job or been thrown out of your apartment or whatever. It was a different a different time frame completely. It was very different. And that actually leads me to the next bar I wanted to talk about, which is the bike stop. You may have heard of that one. This one, I do remember the decor. They had a motorcycle right there on the main floor as part of the uh, uh, ambiance. And they had lots of motorcycle club vests on the, on the, hanging on the walls. They hosted motorcycle club parties. They had jockstrap nights and things like that. But when you talk about people losing their jobs, I worked for the school district of Philadelphia. I also worked at Temple University, but my main job was with the school district of Philadelphia. And I led, I led a double life out of necessity, I felt. Because especially in education, I felt you really had to be careful. And it, even at, at some point, the school district did have a policy of non-discrimination. I felt that that was worthless because it could be changed at any moment at the whim of a new administration. So I was not going to come out. And I feel for the people who got very comfortable recently and say you're a teacher in Florida right now and you're gay and for a while you were out there letting everyone know you're gay and now there's all this backlash that people are either facing or about to face and I wanted to avoid that. I invested a lot into my career and I didn't want to lose it but one night I was at the bike stop and one of the um teachers that I knew, you, you got to know other teachers because they were out too, out in, in, at the clubs and things. I didn't know any teacher that was out in school. I didn't know any of that were. But this guy, he comes up to me and he said, he's actually one of the ones I knew from the My Oh My. Uh, he, he was teaching in Philly as well as I, I was. And he comes up to me and he has tears in his eyes and I say, what's wrong? And he goes, well, I can't come out anymore. I'm going to become a principal and I can't be seen in a club anymore. And I thought, wow, we sacrifice so much. We're asked to sacrifice so much. And I don't know that he never went out again, but he felt like that was the end of the line for him. And another teacher that I knew in Philly, who was going to become a principal, was a member of the Gay Softball League there. And he said to me, you know, I have to quit my position at the Gay Softball League. I can't be seen out there playing because I'm going to become a principal. And I thought, wow, that, that's just horrifying that we can't live our lives the way we want to, because you're not doing anything wrong playing on a gay softball league. You're not doing anything wrong going out to a gay club even. There's nothing wrong with that, but public opinion at the time, and especially in the field of education, you just had to be so careful. And I, I want people to be free to come out. I'm an advocate for that, but I also, I, I even posted something like, on the last coming out day, come out, not because today is coming out day, choose your own coming out day when you feel safe, when you feel comfortable, because it has to be your decision. And that decision was taken away from me way back when, when I was at Penn State and when I was outed by my friends and shunned by everyone that I knew that was straight. So I knew the, what it could be like, I knew how difficult it could be and so those are two of the um, experiences that I had at the bike stop, but those are just small little anecdotes. Basically, that place was 
a wonderful place to gather with like-minded individuals. And it was like anything goes here. You know, you could be as freaky as you wanted to be. You could, you know, do what you wanted to do. And again, one of the reasons that I think gay clubs exist is to, for us to be able to feel free to do what we want to do and to be with people that we want to be with. And even, even today, I, even at my age, I go out to clubs sometimes because I want to be in an environment where I'm surrounded by a bunch of queer people. Well, right. And, and when you're in your formative years, uh, when you're first realizing your identity and exploring the options, even today, even though most gay people will say, well, yeah, you can go with your boyfriend to Applebee's and have dinner and nobody's going to look twice anymore if you're in a normal you know, major city. But you still don't get to explore the nooks and crannies of the gay world by going to an Applebee's or a TGI Fridays. Right. You've got to go to the variety of different bars that, you know, the bars that cater to the trans community or drag performers or male strippers or, um, you know, the Levi Leather Clubs or whatever. So you can get a taste of those different aspects of the community and identify which one is the one that fits you best. Right. And, and that's the part that is kind of sad about what's happening to the the way a lot of bars are homogenizing now um, is that you're not having as much exposure to the diversity. You're right. As you, as you used to. Now, one yeah. friend of mine, one guy that I've interviewed probably over a year ago, who also uh, who went to school in Philadelphia and also had stories to tell about Philadelphia. He told me about his experience going to 24-7. I mean, I'm sorry, about going to bike shop, bike stop. And um, he was a clean cut little preppy, you know, business student or whatever, <laughs> walked up to the door and they had the turnstile, I think. Wasn't there a turnstile at the entrance? Yeah, right. And um, he said the doorman stopped him and talked to him for a minute and seeing the way he was dressed and whatever, explained to him what the bar was. And he said, you might be more comfortable going around the corner to Equus. And mm -hmm. he went around the corner to Equus and had a fabulous time. But it was, it was an experience that kind of directed him to where he ultimately ended up going. I also think I remember from my research that at the bike stop, there was a prominent sign at the entrance that basically forbade any kind of, you know, frilly, frilliness and colognes and all that kind of stuff. They that, basically that was to go down to the basement area. They, first of all, only men were permitted and you had to follow a dress code and it really did say no cologne, <laughs> which is like so funny. But um, yeah, that actually existed but only for the, the downstairs down in the, in the basement area. The rest of it, you know, you were expected to dress a certain way, but it's a shame that that person, I feel, got turned away because they may have gone into the bike stop and found, wow, this is cool, I like this, and come back again. I hope they went back again. Yeah, I, don't think he got, differently. I don't think he got turned away so much as, as maybe educated Excited. a little bit. Right. Um, and he certainly, still a prominent member of the gay community. Uh, his name is Todd Evans. And mm -hmm. um, he runs a company called Rivendell Marketing, or Rivendell Media now. Uh, Rivendell Media places ads in magazines and newspapers all across the country for companies that want to reach out to the gay community. And they've been doing it for like 40 years. So when... Absolute wanted to place their first ad in a, in a gay publication back in 1981 or whatever it was. Hisk was the company they go through. And, Good and for him. Ad. So, so you, you mentioned being guided away. I wanted to bring up one aspect that often isn't talked about in clubs, and that's racial segregation. So in Philly, all the clubs that I've talked about so far were mostly white. I won't say that they were completely white, but they were mostly majority white uh, clientele. So there were some black clubs in Philly, and I did go to some of them um, on occasion. 
I won't speak to, about them as an expert because I didn't go that often, but I want to name a few of them, if I may. Sure. And I didn't talk to you about these before, but one of the first bars I ever went to in Philly was a real rundown place called the Allegro. And that wasn't a black club, but the Allegro too was a black club. And there was a guy named Joey Venuti who was the owner and he uh, provided, he was white, but he provided a place for um, black gay men to go. And there was another place, I think it was called Dusty's but I'm not 100% sure of that. And there was also a, a juice bar called The Nile that was only open for a short time, but it was just like catty corner to the DCA and the 2-4 club. And it was a juice bar. So, you know, you could buy a drink from someone who was kind of serving under the table. Um, so in case anybody came in from the LCB or whatever, they wouldn't get into trouble. But I do want to acknowledge that there was segregation. And in my books, I talk about the segregation and the club in um, the book is actually uh, the owners are determined to do their best to make sure that it's open to everyone. And I like that kind of environment. I like a mix of people. Um, all kinds of people bring all kinds of experiences, all kinds of uh, reasons to celebrate their queerness, along with me celebrating my queerness. And I don't have a problem with any of that. Unfortunately, um, it still exists, it's still a problem in Philly. I've read articles recently that it's still a problem in Philly. And I hope that someday we'll get past that, but we're not there yet. Well, I think part of it, you know, I, I kind of agree with you on that segregation aspect because I was living in Atlanta. Uh, I moved there in 83. And so most of the eighties I lived in Atlanta and a lot of the gay bars that I frequented, I never thought about at that time uh, because I'm a white male. So right. it didn't really occur to me until we started talking about them, you know, years later. And I realized that many of the bars that I went to had very few people of color or women at um, as, you know, regular customers at any of the bars. And I often wondered if it was really by design. In other words, did the bar owner or management actively pursue a specific demographic and turn away people of color? Or was it by the virtue of that particular nature of the music they played and the bartenders they hired and the, the people that lived in the area and went there that it became predominantly whatever, white, um, because it wasn't in a black neighborhood and there weren't very many blacks living nearby and they tended to go to bars in their own neighborhood that played their own kind of music. It is a combination, but I will tell you, there have been lawsuits in Philly about this, and some of the bars have been sued for discrimination, and I would see it. Like, all the white guys walk in, nobody's getting carded. The minute a female is there, they're getting carded. The minute a black or brown guy is there, they're getting carded. So you know that something is up. And um, again, I don't, I think it's important to talk about these things. And I know a lot of people don't want to when they're uncomfortable, but I'm not uncomfortable. You know, when I see discrimination, I want to call it out for what it is. So, uh, you know, excuse me if I make someone uncomfortable, like they talk about in Florida, they don't want the white students to get uncomfortable learning about history. So they're outlawing all these kinds of uh, historical events that you're not allowed to talk to because God forbid the white kids should feel uncomfortable. You know, it's just ridiculous. So anyway, that's enough on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward, um, probably if, couple of decades, you ended up moving to Puerto Rico. I did. I'm and, still here. I'm sorry? I'm still here. And Puerto Rico is a completely different uh, environment 
than anything that anywhere in, in Pennsylvania could ever have offered. Absolutely. I mean, despite the fact that technically they're American, it's um, it's not a very American place. No. It's it's very Caribbean cultural kind of, I don't know, it's, it's a very flavorful and exotic kind of destination. How did you end up in Puerto Rico? Well, I had a lot of friends in Philly who were Puerto Rican. And we started coming here on vacations, and I fell in love with the place. First of all, the weather is perfect all year round, save for the occasional hurricane, but that's <laughs> it. Um, but it's summer all year. I hate the winter, and I hate being cold. And I, I always said, well, the turning point for me was one year when I, when I came with some friends during Christmas vacation, and I'm swimming in the ocean on Christmas day. And I said to my friends, you know what? This is what I want in my life. This is what I was meant for. So I would come back and it was important to me that there is a gay culture here. This is like the Caribbean gay capital, San Juan, and there's some other areas in, in, in Puerto Rico that are also gay friendly. But I, I wouldn't go to a country like Jamaica where they're strongly anti-gay. They have the same weather we do, but I'm not here just for the weather. I'm also here for the culture, the food, the beautiful men that they have here because the men are just gorgeous. And so when I started coming here, uh, there were a lot of gay clubs, a lot of them. And we would go out and have fun. Then I was always upset when I would go back to the United States and I would say, you know, I told everybody, when I retire, I'm going to move to Puerto Rico. And no one believed me. And then I retired. And then I wait, gave myself a year to kind of acclimate myself to being retired, spent time looking for a place to live here. And then I picked up and moved. And I am just so happy. It was the best decision I ever made. Okay, so I can understand that. I've been there one time, but unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, it was the absolute most red carpet trip to Puerto Rico that anybody could ever want to have. Um, I was brought there by the Puerto Rico Tourism Company to write an article for a national magazine about the um, Puerto Rico Jazz Fest. And so everything was VIP all the way. Um, we had a luxury that, that tour bus. Good. Well, it can. It was great. I mean, we had a luxury tour bus picked me up at the airport. So this like 50 foot long bus with, right. with a bar in it comes and just picks me up at the airport. Wow. Well, all these thousands of people are waiting to flag down a taxi cab. Right. I've got this huge bus. Um, they put us up in the, um, I think it was a Marriott above the Stellaris uh, Casino. Oh, yeah, I know that. Condado. Yes. Um, everywhere um, we went. I stayed we there. Had, I stayed there um, once. They it put me on the, the they gay put me on the 18th, right there. On the 18th floor with a view of the ocean. Um, and then everywhere we went, the bus was always waiting at the base of the hotel for me. So if I wanted to go anywhere, I'd just call the front desk and say, I'm, I need to go, you know, pick something up. And the bus driver would drive me in those little tiny streets of Puerto Rico right uh to a bodega but um everywhere we went we had one of two miss puerto ricos with us so of course they roll the red carpet out for that Miss puerto rico or miss gay puerto rico no miss puerto rico it was either desiree lowry or um what was the other one's name joyce gerard so they were two you know winners in puerto rico from the miss universe pageant nice and um they treat them like Madonna. So oh, I know. I everything know. we did was over the top. And little did I know, one night I was I was at the hotel. We didn't have any any events planned on our agenda. And so I went down to the lobby and walked out onto the beach at night. And I said, I'm just going to walk along the beach and see what's around here. So I get on the beach and I turn left. And I see this big nest of sea turtles giving birth with the, you know, no. 
and they have all these um, stakes and, and ribbons around it so nobody would right. disturb them. And then I walk about another 40 feet and I look up and there's this really festive patio there with people hanging out, having cocktails and whatever. And um, I said, I'm going to go up there and have a beer and kind of just watch the beach. And I walk up there and it was the Atlantic Hotel. I right. did not know that I was like next door, literally, right. to a gay bar on the beach right. in Puerto Rico. Right. Um, that's still there, but it's no longer gay, as I understand. It's been re remodeled and changed into some other kind of accommodation. Right. They're, do they're doing a lot of changes in Condado. Um, a lot of things got destroyed by the hurricane in 2017. We had two major hurricanes here that year. And... <clears throat> But I do know the Atlantic Hotel. Uh, there's a little bar very close to there called o Oasis. Um, I sometimes might slip into the Spanish pronunciation because they call it Oasi, but it's Oasis in, in English. And that's um, a little bar that a lot of people go to before you go out to the clubs that are open. Here, the culture is very different, as you alluded to. First of all, the drinking age is still 18, so you still find a lot of teenagers that are coming out to clubs, and they're open until 5 a.m. So, and and these are not usual things in the United States anymore. Right. During the pandemic, of course, everything shut down, and a lot of the clubs closed, and so far have not reopened. And I was getting worried as the pandemic wore on whether it would come back or not. So, uh, because a lot of people left. My friends moved to the United States. Lots of people that I don't know moved to the United States because things were really bad here. Like there was no electricity for months and months and uh, there was so much reconstruction that needed to be done. So, you know, people, want to lead comfortable lives. And if you have relatives in Florida or you can easily go visit someone in Connecticut or New York or wherever, you go. I even went away for a month um, because our situation here was so bad. Our backup generator got destroyed. So we had no backup power at all in the building. I live on the 13th floor and we had to carry water up every day 13 flights of steps at my age. Luckily, I had a friend here with me who could help. And because you needed water for the toilets and you needed water for other things that you just need water for. And our pumps wouldn't work because we had to wait for our generator to get fixed. <clears throat> so that was horrible. But a lot of clubs closed, and I want to mention a few of them, if I may. Um, <clears throat> one I talked to was called Santos. It was a club where uh, it was always packed. I, I went there a number of times before I moved here. They had a rooftop bar. They had a, a balcony and people would hang off the balcony, you know, hollering, you know, doing whatever, um, just having fun. And it's closed. <clears throat> Circo, which was the big disco, um, and one of my favorite places to go after I moved here, uh, it had several floors, it had a big dance floor, it had drag shows, it had go-go boys, it had like anything you could want, and that closed, and it has not reopened. Polo Norte, which is located in Old San Juan, had just opened in 2016, and I went there right after it opened and it was so elegant. It was not my usual style, but I enjoyed it because it was very cool and elegant and it fit into that old San Juan vibe. Right. It closed never to reopen. Babylon, which was another disco, um, again, drag shows, the usual kind of thing that they have. Drag is very big in Puerto Rico. Um, so most every club will have drag shows. Uh, they had drag shows, they had go-go boys, they had dancing, they had, people would congregate outside because, you know, it's always nice here. Right. So 
you, you know, you walk in and out of clubs because you don't have to worry about checking a code or being cold or whatever. Um, so that closed. And another one, there, there's like a little stretch on Calle Condado where Circo, Scandalo, which is the other one I want to talk about, Toxic, and another one, I, I can't remember the name, but they were all right there on Calle Condado and closed. So that was kind of like the epicenter of the, the gay nightclub community on Calle Condado. So what happened was this past December, this new club opened called Queen's Club. And Queen's Club was like, the answer to my question, is gay culture going to survive in San Juan? And the answer is yes, because it's a huge success. They get gigantic crowds. They have lines outside the door waiting to get in, and it's nothing but fun. And this is one of those places, uh, I will say, it caters to a young, beautiful crowd, which I think is wonderful and fabulous. And I might go in for a little bit just to see what's going on and maybe see some people that I know. Um, but I'm so happy that they reopened and they're a success because I was really concerned, would this happen or not? Because so many of the places closed up and you didn't hear about anything coming along. And then all of a sudden this place, Queens Club, and what I, there's two things I wanna point out that are a good thing and maybe not so good thing. It's on a major street. This is like a big thing for me where often gay clubs are hidden away somewhere. That Calle Condado that I'm talking about, it's like a little dark street where, you know, right. tourists are afraid to walk down that street because it looks so foreboding. But Queens Club is right there on a bright, brightly lit corner. And, and I think that's great. It's also huge. And they have these big red doors. But here's the thing that I don't like, and, and it worries me a little bit, and I'm not sure why they do it. There's no sign. There's nothing to indicate that this is Queen's Club. So that takes me back to the days when, in my youth, the gay bars and clubs were hidden. Right. You know, they were kind of, you know, secrets because people would sneak in and they would go down this alley and, you know, sneak into the club and then they come out and, and we were like hidden away. And I don't know if they're doing that because it's kind of cachet to do it, you know, like it's a secret or if they're doing it for protection because of the current environment. Now, I haven't heard about any real anti-LGBTQ uh, kinds of things going on here, but that doesn't mean that it is impossible. And I'm not really sure the reason why they're doing that, but that's the way it is. But it's still a fabulous place to go. And if you ever come here, it's, it's one of those spots that like any gay traveler that comes to San Juan, make sure you hit up Queens Club. Because yeah, I've, I've looked at a lot of their, because um, they're obviously still open. They're only recently opened. Oh, and, right. Um, the pictures on their Facebook account, their pictures on their Instagram, on their website, everywhere. It's just so dynamic and colorful and energetic. It's right. It reminds me of the big discos of like the late 70s and the 80s that were popping up all over the country. You know, yeah. Palladium, The Saints. um Limelight, Backstreet, right. all of these clubs that were ever. I used to go to those ones up in New York. Um, so it's kind of nice to see something on a grand scale opening up, especially in a place like Puerto Rico that you might not consider, you know, the gayest place on the planet. Right. Of course, San Juan is a little bit different, just like. In it's Chile. the gayest place in the Caribbean. That's for sure. Um, oh, now I lost my train of thought. Oh, they have, I think it's one night a month. They have a special night where they kind of recreate the ballroom scene, the old ballroom uh -huh. scene in New York. So if you ever watch Paris is Burning or Pose, and I'm sure you're familiar with both, um, they have a night dedicated to that kind of environment, which is just so cool. And I love seeing that. And it really um, fits it very nicely. 
with the culture here. I, th I think it's just great. I, I, I'm really excited about it. But I want to move on and talk about my very favorite club here, which is SX. I would call it SAECI because that's SX in, in Spanish. This, to me, the, the atmosphere, I describe it as perfecto because for me, it's exactly what I like in a bar. It's dark, it's small, it's crowded, it's loud, it's vibrant, it is exciting, and everyone there is so friendly, you can't believe it. Like you walk in and people greet you, whether they know you or not, and here's the icing on the cake for me, I'm going to admit to this, they have go-go boys all over the place, intermingling with the crowd. So they're not up on a stage somewhere. They're not, you know, far away. They're walking around. They'll go get you a drink. They'll dance with you. They'll do whatever. Um, and I won't go into the whatever. But that's my kind of environment. That's what I like. That's what I enjoy. And a lot of people, like I, 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 tell my friends, you know, I'm going to be sleazy tonight and go to Esaeki, and they, we laugh, you know, but there's a part of that that is very attractive and fun. So, and I embrace that because that's when I was talking about when I went, would go to the uh, Levi and Leather places in Philly, this used to be called the San Juan Eagle be, before it became SX, and then it became Metro Sex Club or something like that. And now it's just called SX. But to me, the friendliness, not only of the staff, but of the, the customers, like everyone is in there to have a good time. And this tiny little dance floor with a DJ right there, and the music is so loud, it's like your heart is pounding, and everyone's dancing, and it's hot, and people are drinking, and chattering, and just having a grand old time. That, for me, is just a great Saturday night out. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible club, and I've seen their Facebook and Instagram pages, too. Um, they are very proud of their strippers. They are very proud of their drag queens. They're very proud of their energy, and every, yes. I mean... It's I'm all gonna be, true. I'm going to be putting up images throughout this video that show, um, you know, some of the photographs and, and flyers and things from these different clubs. And that one, SX, it just, they're like in your face. Like, we are the gayest damn place in Puerto Rico. Right. We are the sexiest damn place. Right. We are the best damn strippers. I mean, they're like all about, you know, patting themselves on the back and telling the world how, how much fun they are. And every bit of it is true. Every word is true. I can attest to it. They are not lying. It is a grand time. So um, I did bring a, a friend that was visiting here from Philly, and I took him there. He didn't like it at all. You know, it wasn't his scene. He just, I guess, didn't feel comfortable. And I told him, you know, look, this is this is my kind of environment. This is what I enjoy. I'm, I'm sorry that you don't like it. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Right. And that's the beauty of all of this, everything that we're talking about. All the different atmospheres and the different clubs, the different clientels, the different groups of people that you get, the different um, kind of social atmosphere. And you were talking about the importance of when you're trying to find your identity, experiencing those and finding out what works for you. So what, where Polo Norte was probably the kind of place which was very elegant and quiet and nice, um, the guy from Philly who was visiting here, uh, he would have loved that. Me, I'm there, you know, down in the dark, dancing around with, with uh, a bunch of people and uh, just having a grand old time and letting loose. That's more my style. And there's nothing wrong with either one of those, in my opinion. Absolutely. So you've told us about some really great gay bars that you've had some experience with, that you visited, and that you, you know, have fond memories of. But we haven't talked yet about the fact that you, you have two books out. There's a book called Club, Clubbed, and a book called Club Two. 
And right. presumably there's a club three on the way. That is that is correct. In those books, you have created your own fictional bar, which is called Club Sanctuary. Right. What is Sanctuary like? Sanctuary tries to be everything that I've talked about. It tries to include everyone. So there are various areas there. It try, the, the story is a guy, Joey, who comes from the suburbs of Philly. He's a white guy. He's young. He inherited some money, and he inherited a building, a warehouse building that his father owned. And he comes to Philly after his father dies with this idea of having a club. He meets this black guy, Henry, in Rittenhouse Square in Philly. They kind of hook up and go to a black club first, and then Joey takes him to this warehouse, and they walk around, and they have this vision for an inclusive club for everyone. So in the stories, first of all, I want to give the full title, Clubbed, A Story of Gay Love, Trials, Tribulations, and Triumphs. The reason I gave it two subtitles, uh, A Story of Gay Love, here's the original cover. There's nothing gay about it. I liked the red door because Club Sanctuary had a red door, just like the My Oh My had a red door. So I wanted to have that, but then I changed it to this cover, which is much more indicative of this is a gay novel. You know, it kind of screams it out. But anyway, um, I see the book as being a metaphor for the entire community. So I, while Joey and Henry are the main characters and they fall in love and they have a very positive relationship. And on purpose, I made the black character to be the stronger, dominant, like the more intelligent, the better educated. I wanted to show that because too often it's the opposite. You know, the black guy is the secondary character. The white guy is coming in to, you know, save the black world. You know, I hate those kinds of movies and TV shows, but so this is uh, by design. But I also incorporated all kinds of different stories. It's not just like a romance novel where, you know, these two perfect people meet and fall in love and they're, one's a billionaire and one, you know, you know what a romance novel is like. Right. I didn't want to write a romance novel, but there is a love story in there. But then there's all these other characters. And some people who read the book like that and understand it, and some people don't. And that's okay. But I want to explain that the reason that there are all these other characters is because I'm trying to tell different stories. I'm trying to tell the story of that guy standing at, at, at the 247 all by himself. And while I don't know what his story is, I fictionalized it and I put that, uh, that type of character in one of the chapters and you don't get to know them intimately. You don't get to know everything about them. And some reviewers have said, well, you know, these people come and go so quickly. And I'm like, have you ever been in a gay club? People come and go so quickly. You know, when I walk into a gay club, I might be with friends or not. I might know some of the people, there are people that everyone in the club knows, you know, the A-listers. I have a whole chapter about A-listers, but I'm not giving you all their story. I'm just giving you a little glimpse into that. So I, I try really hard to incorporate the community into the story and interweave these different characters. And so that's what Sanctuary is. It's all-inclusive it is really, um, Joey, the character at one point is self-reflecting and he's, he's saying to himself, I wonder what people think about me. And he says, here's what I want them to think about me. They might think I'm stupid. They might think that I you know, didn't earn what I have because I inherited all this money, but I want them to know two things that I always support the LGBTQ community, and I'm anti-racist. So I wanted to bring that part in, and, and I even say in there 
that, you know, this is not the vocabulary they, they would use in that time period, but Joey is actually looking back from the 21st century and telling the story, so he can use modern language like that. And most of the story is written from the perspective of Joey, who is the narrator. But in book three, I'm going to give Henry, the Black character, a much stronger voice. So there are going to be, instead of just one point of view, there's going to be two points of view. And that's like not something that I've actually talked about with anyone yet. So I'm giving you an exclusive on Club Three that there will be two points of view. And the, my working, oh, the, the subtitle for Club Two is Anxiety, Anger, Activism. And that kind of exemplifies for me that time period because this is the height of the AIDS pandemic when you know you know how it was. So I said, you know, people got anxious, what's going on? They got angry, they joined things like ACT UP and different organizations and then activism where we had to take it upon our own shoulders of the community to support ourselves because the government was not going to do it. And my working title for Club 3, I'm not 100% sure, but the working subtitle is going to be Happily Ever After with a question mark because I read a lot of comments where people say, I only want to read happy stories. I, I need my H-E-A, my happily ever after. And that's fine, but that's not life. And that's okay in a romance novel. That's okay in a book. I enjoy a happily ever after, but I'm putting happily ever after with a question mark so the reader is left to read it and find out, do Joey and Henry have a happily ever after or not? So that's my idea for it. I'm working on it right now. Wow, awesome. So you, you did touch upon Club 3. Um, when should people expect that to come out? Is there Early a Early in 2023, probably late January or early February. That's my target date. Okay, so everybody's got a couple of months to get clubs and club two and read them. So they'll be ready for club three by the time it comes out. So all those Christmas lists you're making up <laughs> and whatever, the clubbed books need to be on there so you can be ready for club three when it comes out in January or February of 2023. And let me just add, they're also available as audiobooks. I have a fabulous narrator named Curtis Michael Holland. He read the first clubbed book and he contacted me. He works as a narrator. He said, I love this book so much. I would love to narrate it. I had never even thought about doing an audiobook, but it's, they're also available as audio. And he does a fabulous job narrating. He brings these characters to life and I'm very pleased with them. And I, just want to take an opportunity again to thank you for this opportunity for me because this has been so exciting and thrilling to be a part of what you're doing. I'm just over the moon. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to walk us down memory lane and share all these stories and memories of gay bars that many of which no, no one will ever be able to visit again. That's so right. thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode, or to find more episodes, visit GayBarchives.com.